deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, I want to, before getting into this Esther 4, just kind of remind you where we are. We are in the month of January doing a series on, uh, exam, we call it an examination, prayer and fasting, hungry for God. We're looking at times in scripture where God's people fasted and prayed, and we're just asking ourselves the question, what to make of it? We don't always live in the same circumstances or have the same issues that, that might be there. So we're not trying to then say, hey, we need to do this so that that'll happen, right? Because we've said the whole time, prayer and fasting are not tools for manipulation. But what are the circumstances around which it has happened in Scripture? And what can we learn about that? Because we're going to be heading into uh, starting January 30th. So that's a Monday. Running through February 28th, uh, Genesis and other churches in the Houston area will be entering into 30 days of fasting and prayer, specifically for uh, those who in our lives are far from God. We want to be praying for those. We have, even on our app, uh, those live, work, and play prayer cards where you can just be naming people in your life who are far from God that we can be praying for, that you can be praying for. It's a way to remind us of the people God has already put into our lives who don't know him rather than always feeling like we always need to go out and find more people. Like there, I, I bet there are already people in your lives who don't know the Lord and uh, that we could, you could, I could, we could be praying more for. So uh, we will be entering into that with a specific goal of praying for those in our lives far from God, praying for Genesis and our, uh, we could just call it evangelistic effectiveness, uh, missional zeal, whatever words you want to use, you can, you can use, and I'm sure they would be appropriate or more appropriate than even mine. Uh, but uh, it's just this, this week, we'll probably email out those who are on our kind of member regular attender list with an opportunity uh, to sign up for a day. And what we're asking if you fast during that time is just to pick a time. Pick a, pick a way you're going to fast. We don't, we, you don't have to say, well, I'm going to do it like this. Like, if you say, hey, I'm going to fast on February 1st, and that is going to mean you skip lunch, great, skip lunch. If that means you're going to skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner, great, skip them all. Um, but having a plan for how you use the the time you skip eating. And so we don't really have a specific, it's going to look like this. We just say, if you are saying, I'm going to do it on this day or on these days, that you, you with the Lord go, this is how I will pursue it. Uh, I have a friend in town who's, he, he's chosen to, uh, in his, uh, with his church, is he's going to just limit himself to one meal a day. I think that on the days where I'm doing this for my church, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have one meal a day and that's it. That's fine. Uh, what I would say is, if you've never entered into something like this and you'd like to participate, uh, you can try and hit a home run, but you probably won't. So, so I was like, I'm going to do it every day. I'm not going to eat for 30 days straight. I'm like, well, that probably won't work. So, you know, especially if you're used to eating 17 times a day because you're an American. So try for something that is challenging, different than you might usually do. Uh, but also, I, I say challenging but attainable because you don't want to go, well, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do all of these. And so if it's something you're familiar with and you know, if, if, if you fast one day a year or one day a month, 
try something else. And I don't know any of your, I know I think one person's habit. I don't know anybody else's. So that'll be the invite. You'll get that. It's a Google sheet. You just kind of put your name in there and you say, hey, I'll do it on this day. And so already, because we've talked about it with uh, our elders, we've talked about it with some of our community group leaders, already we have almost every day of that month covered um, for at least one person. We have a couple of times where uh, we need, like, I don't know what day, Fridays. We'll pick it. Uh, we all have all, already almost every day. So I really do think once we invite all you guys in, we'll have multiple people fasting every day for 30 days. And um, here's the thing. It's like, well, what's God going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I got, I'd like, you might, you might get done with the month and go, that stunk. That, like, like, all I was was hungry. Uh, I, like, that's, I understand. Uh, because very often we want to, like, we're, we're so focused as American Christians on instant gratification. Like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for this thing, and I expect God to turn that answer around in, like, 12 hours. So I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to be serious about it. And then, bam, like, answer. And really, it's about disciplining ourselves to take seriously the things of God, to even to the point that we will remove things that are ultimately for our good so that we can pursue a better good, which is the Lord. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to say, hey, God, but we also want this. So I, I am fully expectant that it will be good regardless of what goes on. Uh, it'll be good if you get bothered, right, because you get to deal with your flesh. Uh, it'll be good if, uh, if you go, well, I, I probably, even if you get to March, you go, I didn't do anything. I should have participated. Even if you feel that way, that's good. Right, like, like, so I, like, it won't be bad. I remember one time talking to my friend Jonathan. It's not, it's none of you, and I don't think there's a, a I don't know of a Jonathan around here. So, uh, we did this at a church, and we just had like a day where we would pray, and we gathered together at the end of the of the week, and at the end of that day, and we and we just had a time of prayer and worship or whatever. And uh, I remember Jonathan was like, "Man, I was not expecting it to, I was like expecting to enjoy just the worship time and being together." And I thought I was, I, I just kind of thought it was a little perfunctory to do. I said, yeah, isn't it funny that, like, when you do things that, that are important to God's people, like, they're generally all right. Uh, like, you, you actually do have a decent experience. So the challenge before all of us is how are we going to participate? Like, in what ways are we going to participate in prayer and fasting over that, those 30 days, January 30th to February 28th? And, um, and giving it a try before the Lord and going, God, I'll try. I, I want to I be with you. I wanna, I, people in my life don't know you, and I want them to know you. And so... If you dedicate one time during that month to intentional prayer, uh, that I would guess for many of us that's one time more than we usually dedicate to those things over the course of a year, and that's a good thing. So that's what, you know, we'll keep talking about it. Uh, we're going to actually, on the 29th, if I have my math right, that's the last Sunday in, uh, in January. On the 29th, we'll have a little one-hour prayer time, worship time here, 5 o'clock in the afternoon just as we enter into it, just a time to be together, to pray, to sing, and to head into the month. And so you'll get another invite to that on the 29th, but just know that 29th, is there, I get the question, like, is there chalk ears or that? Honestly, Matt and I were sitting together, and I was working on a sermon, and I was like, we should probably do, like, a, a bookending, like, time of worship and prayer for this thing. How about the 29th and the 30th? He's like, that sounds good. So that's a, the planning it's gotten to this point is a date on a calendar and a time. So all the other things are like, well, does it have this or does it have that? I don't know. I don't know what it has. It has an hour right now <laughs> on the calendar. That's what it has. Okay. So, Matt, whenever you're doing the, the sermon thing, like, just cut all that out for the video. And now the sermon's, you know, three, two, right? Now the sermon starts. I'll get my preacher voice on. Uh, but I do. I, so 
Some of you, not all of you, some of you are in professions where you're kind of untouchable. Uh, maybe, now, I don't, Gary, I don't know if you're untouchable. But, you know, when you own the business, you're a little more untouchable than others. Uh, but that's also because you have more skin in the game. And, you, you know, there was probably a season where you weren't as untouchable. Now, everybody, we all know, I could, you, you could lose a job, you could lose whatever at any given time. But there are certain times when you know, you know, last hired, first fired, and you certainly weren't the last hired. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. Um, and, like, you're going to be one of the last ones cut. And that level of security for us feels pretty good. It feels pretty good to know, oh, hey, I'm in a good spot. I have a good job. Like, they like me around here. Uh, they're going to fire my brother way before they would fire me. Uh, they're going to, like, 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 we're going to be fine. And so I, I understand, like, job security feels nice. It's much better than job insecurity. And so it's, good, it's cool when you've worked at some place long enough or you have a certain kind of relationship or connection or, uh, or reputation in a spot where you go, I think, I think that I'm, I'm kind of covered and I'm going to be good for a while. And I can run in this stream for years and years and it's not going to be, it's not going to really be an issue. So we should be good for a while. You have the money, you have the stability, you know what you're doing, you have the reputation and the relationships, and you find that to be so comforting. And that's just with earthly status. That's just when you, like, that's just, that, that's a job title, or that's a paycheck, or that's tenure, or something like that, right? Where you go, hey, uh, Bart, I was going to ask you about tenure, but I decided not to. Um, but I was Googling it a couple of weeks ago to figure out more about it, because the seminaries often don't do tenure in the same way. So, uh, but, but tenure was really, if you're a professor, all about academic freedom. You want to have a level of security in your job so that you can research without concern that they're going to come for your job. Right? So, so like, you know, I, I want to be able to do good work, hard work, uh, and even maybe controversial work without the concern, right? So tenure protects you from being able, like, like feeling as if, if you do something or you research something or you study something or you teach something, that you have the freedom within that system to do that. And when you get to that spot, and often, I mean, if you've ever pursued it, and I know at least one has, if you've ever pursued it, it becomes like once you, if you get it, it's a bit of a relief, it's a bit of a relief to go, okay, I've demonstrated a certain level of competence in this field. I, I'm, I'm good for a while. Now, I, I, again, I'm in the seminary world, and they, they kind of, tenure is kind of a, a little bit of a different thing uh, in our world. But they still offer it for some. It feels good. But here's what I would have to say for every Christian in this room is that your status with the Lord is so much more secure than your status with any earthly relationship that you have. It's more secure than your relationship with your spouse. It's more secure than your relationship with your job. It's more secure than the money in your bank account. It's more secure than the relationship at your church. It's more secure than the leaderships that, that, that you're connected to. It's more secure than the people in your Rolodex. It's more secure than the people who check up on you or tell you happy birthday on your Facebook timeline. Like, your, your status with God doesn't change. And that really, now it's interesting, in, in any earthly setting or any earthly relationship, when we know there's a level of security with it, we act in a different kind of way. We act with a different kind of freedom. We act with a different kind of comfort because we're not worried about what's going to happen to the relationship. But sometimes with the Lord, we act with him like we're still trying to get tenure. 
Like, I got to be sure that I like, I got I to gotta do well enough, like in my first 10 years as a Christian. I got to give enough. I got to be involved enough. I have to lead enough. I have to be faithful enough so that I can finally kind of level into the spot where I'm definitely protected by God and I'm going to stay in the spot. But, but God kind of works in reverse, right? Like, he secures your status way before you've earned it because you can't. And so your status gets secured by God. And you actually get to spend the rest of your life operating from a level of security that goes on through into eternity. You get to operate today with that level of security rather than the security that you might find in your other earthly relationships and your other earthly status. Well, as we look today at Esther chapter 4, we actually see someone in Esther who is operating from an understanding, and you see it in Mordecai as well, operating from an understanding of who God is and who God is for his people that actually determines and changes the way that they operate in their earthly relationships. You see the difference? And so because of who they know, what they know about God, and what they know about God's promises for the nation of Israel, they actually operate with the king, the pagan king, in a different way, in a way that actually might result in the end of Esther's life. But because she knows one thing is secured, and because Mordecai is confident in God's plans and God's promises... There is this change where it changes how she operates with the king. That's what we're going to see in Esther chapter 4. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have to get to Esther chapter 4 first, which is going to be a, a little bit of work. So we're going to kind of position ourselves in the book of Esther because if you haven't read it in a while or you haven't read it ever, then just to get dropped into chapter 4, you're like, where am I? And so we're going to tell you where you are and kind of where it's going. And then from there, we're going to go into chapter 4 and see how chapter 4 helps us in the entire story of Esther. Now, with that, the book of Esther, and you can I, we've been using these Bible project charts from time to time, and so uh, you can certainly see that. You can't read everything that's on it, nor do you have to. I'm gonna, the, the positioning, the actual structure of the chart is what I'm going to point out here in a moment. But if we could say it like this, uh, Esther would be a book where you could say, God's purposes prevail in uncertain times and in unexpected ways. Okay? God's purposes prevail in uncertain times and in unexpected ways. That fundamentally is what the book of Esther is about. Now, if you know some of the trivia about the book of Esther, it's the book of the Bible that never uses the word God. So you can actually never find the name of God in the book of Esther. But you find the hand of God, the activity of God everywhere in the book of Esther. Esther is a book that teaches us that God is active even when we're unsure of how he's moving. That God is active even in the earthly status that one might have and in the relationship that one might have. And that God is active long before you even know that God is active. So God, the book of Esther really does show us the powerful actions of God even when we're unsure that God is moving. And even, even in the small things, like even in the tiny things of life, God is moving even in those. We always see in books like this that it's also about God showing up and demonstrating his promises to his nation because there is a bit of, of uncertainty about the, the, the moral, uh, the morality of the Israelites at this time in history, right? So, so it, it's still this part of like, they're not all being totally faithful in every way. That's a story all of us know. We're like, man, I'm, I'm being good in some spots and really struggling in other spots, but we're going to see from this just a few things. Now, remember, as you follow that chart, that kind of you as it looks there uh, behind me, Book of Esther probably happened sometime in the 5th century, so mid-400s. We're going to put it kind of mid-400s B.C., after many had returned from exile. So many had returned from exile back to the land, but 
as anybody who gets people's phone numbers here, sometimes I get people's phone numbers, you may not know this, but if a number begins with 504, does anybody know the 504 area code? No, just me, maybe Courtney. Five, oh, yeah, 504. New Orleans, that's right. If, so if I meet somebody in spring and they give me their number and it's a 504 number, you know the first thing I'm thinking? Katrina got you here. Katrina got you here because a lot of people moved from New Orleans into other spots temporarily, and then that temporary assignment became, you know what, we're just going to stay. We're just going to stay. Kind of life's here, family's here, kids, grandkids. Things have now, you know, we've kind of, we, we have uprooted and rerooted, and uprooting and rerooting again doesn't really feel that significant. So when I meet people, or I hear them, and I'm like, you don't talk like you're from spring. You talk like you're from New Orleans, because that, I love a New Orleans accent. Oh, my gosh. Like, like it, it's like home. And so I'm like, you're my best friend. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Like, if you, if you can talk like somebody from New Orleans, I'm in. And so I'll go, hey, you know, yeah, are you from New Orleans? You can sometimes just say it. You from New Orleans? And, and then I'm like, well, my wife's in the bayou. That's actually literally what I say every time. My wife's in the bayou, um, so you guys can be friends. I'm kind of from Texas, but I wish I were from the bayou. But we'll, we'll get there. My number's still 225. That's Baton Rouge. So like, I still have a 225 number. I'm not giving it up. Right? I'm not taking the 832 or the 713 or the 9 whatever 6 number anymore. Uh, so mid-400s, a lot of people are still there in the land to which they were exiled. And they're growing up and they're living life. And they really, it doesn't seem as if there's this specific like, getting back. Now, next week we're going to hear about Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and people who returned. But in this one, we don't really see this desire to return. We see how God is still working even in his people's lives when they aren't back in the land and what he's doing to preserve the lives of his people even when they aren't back in Jerusalem or back rebuilding the temple. So it's kind of a cool thing to see in this book, God's activity, even after a lot of people had returned back to the land. Like he's still doing stuff over here in Susa, okay? So we are living this out, 5th century B.C., and the book of Esther, you could say, is really a book of reversals. It's all about reversals. Everything's going on. So a few things, right? Like the position of Esther is a reversal from orphan to queen. She was actually adopted by Mordecai, who was a relative. So, so Mordecai takes Esther into his home, but Esther did not have, uh, didn't live with her birth family. It's a reversal that you see the, the exaltation of Mordecai. He was first on the hit list to be killed. There was going to be a gallows. You could say a guillotine, a gallows. Um, impalement is actually what they get to see, which if you look at the bottom left or bottom right, not the, not the like, I don't know if the kids are using that picture uh, in their rooms. Uh, but a good argument to be made for either it's a gallows or it's actually an item to impale somebody on. So Mordecai was going to be killed, but Haman ends up being killed. Like there's a reversal of the fortune of Mordecai, and Mordecai is a Jewish man. We then in that see the downfall of Haman. He was honored at first, but then he ends up dying, right? So there's the reversal there. There's a reversal of who is protected and who is not. So, right? So we have like the uh, Artaxerxes, we have the, 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 the king and all that's going on. Uh, you think that the, those are going to be, those people will be protected and the Jewish people are going to be destroyed. That's actually the decree that's made in the first part of the book. That's what Esther is so upset about. Is in Mordecai so upset about it. it's like the Jewish people are going to be killed because Haman's angry. 
But what ends up happening at the end is Haman is destroyed and those who go to kill the Jewish people are actually destroyed. The Jewish people survive. This book tells us where the Jewish festival of Purim comes from, right? This book actually talks about, so if you ever hear people celebrating Purim, it's from the book of Esther about the celebration that happens. In fact, Esther also begins with a banquet and ends with a banquet. But the king is putting on the banquet in the first part of the book. There's a banquet in the middle part of the book, but then at the end, it's a celebration of God's people. And so in everything, you're seeing this change. Now, why behind me do you get to see this kind of like, why does it move this way? Well, well, a book, the book of Esther is, is considered uh, chiastic or chiastic, which means that it's kind of moving to a point. It kind of moves into a point and moves out of a point. And it kind of does this in parallel fashion. So if you go right down into the middle, the bottom of that V or that U, the exaltation of Mordecai instead of Haman becomes kind of this pivot point in the book of Esther where we're moving from things going really badly for the Jewish people to things getting better and better for the Jewish people. And it starts with Haman who has to parade Mordecai around for preserving the king's life. And so now the guy who was expecting a party for himself has to celebrate the guy or at least be the one leading, leading the guy along who he wants to have killed. So he's having to watch a group of people in Susa celebrate a man he wants dead. And from that, we actually see this turn, and Esther, Esther went to the king beforehand. There's the exaltation in chapter uh, 6, and then we move from that to Esther revealing what's going on. The king goes, or can't, you can't undo a decree, so we'll make a decree on top of a decree that all the Jewish people can defend themselves. And so I can't rescind the order, but I can add an additional order that every Jewish person who can fight can fight. And they fight, and they win. And that's why we end with an exalted Mordecai, a celebrating nation. And again, even though the name of God is not mentioned at one time, we see throughout the activity of God in the book of Esther. Now, that's a lot. Hans, this is a series on, on prayer and fasting. Why do we have to hear about the whole book? Well, it isn't until we understand what's going on with the whole book that chapter 4 makes much sense. We just get dropped into chapter 4, and Mordecai is sad, and Esther's using this intermediary. He's like, hey, go ask him why he's sad. And he says why he's sad. And he's like, okay, well, he says he's sad for this reason. You ever done that? Like, you know, like, like maybe in middle school, we're like, hey, go ask him if he likes me. Okay, well, he said, right, it's back and forth. And so Esther is not actually talking to Mordecai like an adopted father. She's sending Hattosh to go talk to Mordecai. And he's going back and forth in between the two going, okay, well, you tell her this, and you tell him that, and you tell her this, and you tell him that. Like, it's just back and forth that happens where they're not interacting because she's a royal official. And Mordecai can't come in in his, in his state of fasting and mourning he can't come into the king's palace in that state and refuses to change his clothing so that uh, he would be seen in a, different, in a different way and perhaps could even come in. So that's what we have in chapter 4. So we're going to go through this uh, just bit by bit, and then we're going to understand why at the end this call to fast and pray and how this fits into all of what's going on in the book of Esther. To this point, through chapter 3, there has been the decree made that the Jewish people will be destroyed. So they're going to be destroyed. Mordecai, Jewish man, Esther, Jewish woman, they understand, or Mordecai understands what's going on, and he's broken over it. 
he's bothered by the news of what's going to happen. And as the news goes out, and they're delivering it to all the people, all they're delivering, what's going to happen? So all the royal officials are going out and saying, you know, very soon all the Jewish people are going to die. Like, that's not good news. And it's even brought up in Esther, this kind of happenstance. The people are really sad, but the other people who are the royal officials who are delivering the news are just delivering the news. So the first thing we see in those first three verses is just the brokenness of the Jewish people over the evil plan of Haman. That's what we see. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, now we know all that had been done was this entire plan to kill the Jewish people on a specific day, a specific way. When he learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out to the midst of the city, cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. No one was allowed to enter the king's gate in sackcloth. So he went to the big entrance of the king's gate, didn't go into the king's gate. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So you have all these Jewish people who are getting the news that they are about to die. And what happens? Mordecai sees this and he goes to the entrance and Esther is about to see him. Now, I'm not sure in regard to at this point in time, right? Every, we, always, we always understand faithfulness of the person wanes, faithfulness of God remains the same. The ability for the person to kind of remain faithful always is a struggle, but the ability of God, you see this all throughout Scripture, the ability for God, his faithfulness is unquestioned. He stands faithful every time. These people hadn't returned to the land. We don't see a, a big reference to how they walk with God. But Mordecai knows the identity of his people. And he's broken over what's going to happen. He's broken over what's going to happen. So clearly there's some connection to his people, his God, God's promises, recognition that some have already returned back even though they're growing up in the land. And this is an important point I've used about prayer before is that, you know, we go, why do we pray? Now, some of us, especially like the frozen chosen minds, like we have a really hard time understanding why prayer even matters. Okay? And we talked about how that's really a position of unbelief. Well, if God's going to do what God's going to do anyways, what do I have to do? Well, God's kind of commanded some ways his people operate with him. And, you know, and, and Jesus modeled it. So I'm like, well, if Jesus, God, prayed, then I don't think that he was too worried about being fatalistic. I, I think that Jesus... If Jesus is our model, then the fact that Jesus prays lets us know that even when God is sovereign, God prays. And so we have comfort in knowing, yeah, we pray because we must. We pray because we must. And you go, well, what kinds of things do I pray for? Well, one, of the things that, one of the ways that I put it is when you see the way the world is. Remember how in the Gospel of John, we'll get back into that in about the next month. When you see a way the world is and it's different than the way the world should be that that becomes a matter for prayer. And that can be in the biggest of ways or the smallest of ways. When there's a way that something is going on, John would talk about the world's ways, and the world's ways are not the same as God's ways, and the world's ways are against God. So when you see the world's ways operating in one way, and you know that God has spoken differently about it, that then for us, the believer, becomes a matter of prayer. Like, like that's our only recourse to align these two worlds is to beg of God to align them. That's step one of bringing this kind of alignment. So let's just think about a few illustrations. A world where maybe your unbelieving daughter would trust in the Lord after years of unbelief. That's a matter of prayer. 
I was talking to a man even this week who was sharing about his whole family doesn't believe. And, and you know, I say, how are you doing? And he kind of runs through all the, how he's not doing great, but also learning about himself in this and his relationship with his, uh, his family and what, you know, how he could function differently. Those are matters of prayer. When you see, I would love these people to know the Lord, and they don't. You can't force them to know the Lord. Like, it doesn't work. And so it becomes a matter of prayer. And I try to do this with, I, I don't do this with everything clearly, but I try to do this with a lot of things. And I mean, it's even the smallest stuff. Uh, like, like, Lord, I just need to be happier, content with what I have. I'm discontent. I should probably pray for my contentment. And not only that, I should probably pray that I'm satisfied with what's in the bank, what you've given me, and not always be wondering what else there should be or what else is out there, right? Like, like, so I just need to be content in those spaces, right? A world that is, a world that should be, close that gap with prayer. And maybe for this, maybe, maybe you long for, and I say this to a lot of people, like, like you want a marriage that thrives. Or if you're not married right now, you want a spouse who loves the Lord. And you want a, mar- you want a marriage, and you would like that marriage to thrive. It's like you, want, you probably want both. Like, I want to be married, and I would like that marriage to thrive, but if we could just get me married first, we'll work on part two later. But you want, I, I talk to people sometimes, like, don't you want your marriage to thrive? Or do you want it to be miserable? I'm not sure which one you want. Like, misery is not fun. Right? So, so if it doesn't, well, bring that before the Lord. Keep bringing it before the Lord. Ask God why it isn't that way. Ask God to reveal your own sin and your own heart in it. Like, like again, world it is, world it should be, what do I do? That's what we see with Mordecai. He knows about God. He's raised up Esther. He recognizes the creed. He's broken over it. He needs God to move, but in that, he is going to ask his adopted daughter what will be. He explains the reason for brokenness in verses 4 through 7. Everyone's going to die. He's going to kill them all. And so Mordecai makes a request in verses 8 through 11. And what he's asking Esther to do, which is rather, it's a pretty serious request. Because Esther, right, she's there, she sees him, she's in the palace, she's with her people. So she keeps sending Hattach in between to have this conversation. And he is sending Hattach to go deliver a message to her about what he would like to see her do. Now this message begins first with with, I would say, like a worldly response to the problem. Now, I don't mean worldly like, in a, like it's the wrong response, but he's giving like an earthy, this is what I'd like to see you do. Look in verse 8. Mordecai gave him, that would be Hattach, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for there, the Jewish people's destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, the command of the king, and to, be, to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. Right? So it's like, it's like when one of the kids goes, could you go talk to dad about this? Right? Like, Esther, you go to the king. You're the queen. You go to the king, and you have this conversation about it. I can't do it. You're the person to do it. And then you're like, come on, really? Are you going to make me do this? 
So Atat said everything. Esther then said, go tell him this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one for whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. So she goes, I haven't been called to the king, so you're sending me on a death mission. That's what you're probably doing for me, Mordecai, dad, right? Like, like, like this is what you're asking. You're asking me to go before the king, and I'm the one who's going to die here. You're not. Well, he might. You're not going to die if you go before. Like, like I, you're asking me to go. And so there's this response where she's, she's looking at the situation, and Mordecai's looking at the situation in, in a specific light. Now, all, this all happens in the same paragraph, so we're about to get our eyes lifted to let's not forget what God is doing. But I think there is always a temptation when we want to see God move to insert a human response, a worldly response, and go, I can't do that. I can't do that because you know the law. This would happen if I do that. Where you're only really looking at the situation as man would see the situation. You're only looking for the solutions that man would come up with. You ever been in that kind of thing? Where you go, this can't happen because you don't know my boss. I can't ask for that. I can't do that. I can't ha- you, can't, you don't know this person. If you knew this person, you knew that wouldn't be okay. That's essentially what Esther's saying. You remember the law? I'm going to die if I do this. And he doesn't essentially hold out the scepter and say, it's okay, you can live. Now, some of you parents are like, I kind of want to adopt that rule in my own house for my children, right? Like, no one comes into the room unless you're invited. Uh, and if you're invited, you will live. But if you come in uninvited, you will die unless I say you, you won't. Like, I'm sure some of you would prefer to have some of these rules. Like, hey, we're going back to Susa. Susa rules in our house. We really, we really like this. Now, your kids are about to then give you the Mordecai response. Because there is in this, and this is what I love, this, this, this eye-lifting Remember what God is doing. And we all need people in our lives who do this for us. And we need to be this for other people to go, remember the Lord in this. Remember what's going on. Because he's about to give a different response. And that response is, maybe this is why you're in this role. Look, verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther said. Mordecai told them to reply. This poor Hattach, like this guy has the worst job right now. Do not think to yourself, in the king's palace, you'll escape any more than the other Jews. So he's already saying, if we're dying, you're dying. So don't think that you're exempt from this decree. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So you see even the confidence that God's going to do something here. And if it's not you, it's going to come somewhere else. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, this is the oft-quoted Esther line, right? Like, everyone's like, oh, for such a time as this, for such a time as this. It's always what we use. But what he's saying is, we don't know. Now, have you heard that question in these, these moments of desperation with Jonah and with Joel and now in Esther? It's like, who knows, Right? Like, like this kind of response. It's happened every time we've gone into one of these passages at these kind of pivotal moments of decision or needing to see God do something. There's this part where they go, who knows what will happen? 
Who knows? And so Mordecai goes, who knows? You could have been put in this role for this moment. Now, I bet many of you are like me. And this is something that God is, is by his grace, like, like ripping out of me. And, and it's been a while now. And so I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm on the back end of it. But I definitely think I've, I've been through a good bit of it. I, I had always been in my life so deterministic. I'd always been so like, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, blah, 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 doesn't really matter, right? And, and, and I didn't see the, the divine orchestration of events nearly as often as I see now. Where it's not even, in this passage, it's not even what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Well, maybe it's not, it's not just that moment. But it's the moment when Mordecai took Esther into his home. Right? Esther's not going to hear this request just from anybody. Hey, there's a sad man down at the gate. Ask him why he's sad. No, it's because it's Mordecai. It's because it's family. It's because it's somebody that she has known. It's for somebody who's mentored her and cared for her. That that's why she's interested. And we so often look at life as just a series of coincidences when they are not. When they are God's activity putting us in places and in spaces, even where you live, isn't a mistake. The neighbors that you have who don't know the Lord, they're not my neighbors, they're yours. The relationships that you have at work, they're not my relationships, they're yours. The friends that you have in your homeschool co-op, not my relationships, they're yours. The people that your, your kids go to school with and the families are connected to, they're not my relationships, they're yours. The people that you teach, the people that you care for, the kids that are in those classes, right? Like, like we, don't, we sometimes go, oh, I'm just going to do this thing. It's not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. And one thing I see in Esther is just this, this bigger picture of life to go, you, you know what? No, I, it's not just a job. I don't just have a job. I have a place God has put me to make him known, to do great work, to do it faithfully. Here's a crazy story about this, all right? So, um, oh gosh, I got my timer going. I keep the timer here. I'm telling the story. Here we go. So, yeah, you're ready. Zach's, Zach's ready. I'm going to talk to Zach. The rest of you can go home. Um, so I have a, a friend who oversees an organization. This organization um, is all about starting businesses in unreached co uh, countries, Okay. And one of the things that he does is he, is, is he helps to just encourage these on, they support them, they train them. And so they start legitimate businesses in unreached countries. And he was set, telling a story because somebody, one of my students was like, well, what about closed countries? Do you have closed countries? And my buddy replies, he goes, there are no closed countries when you're trying to bring legitimate businesses to them. Like they're, they're, like, like, like the clo it's, they're closed to Christian workers. Religious worker visas, like that's what they're close to. They're not close to somebody who wants to employ people and generate income and pay taxes. Like, we're welcome. So we don't have a close country. You do. And you're like, ooh. But look at this. So there's this one, uh, one business that's run off of this island, and it's like a resort. I'm not kidding. It's a resort. Like, that's the business, a resort, like, like vacation resort. You go, wait, Christians can run resorts? Yeah, man, go for it. 
and invite us all. Well, you know, sometimes during crackdowns or seasons of distress, they, they, they wanna, they, they're not hiding the fact that they belong to Jesus, right? The employees they hire, they want to come to know the Lord. But here's something that was interesting. There are people in that country that want this resort business gone. And the reason that they would want it gone is because they're believers there. They don't want Christians in our country. But the government says, we're not kicking them out. Because they're the only honest tax-paying business that we have in this country. They pay the bulk of the taxes for us. And you go, huh, who would have thought that integrity and in how you run a business in another country where people don't know the Lord actually gets you to stay in that country? See, I know, I know, right? Most people here, you're like, taxes are the worst. But you don't often think, right, that like taxes might actually, in the right paying of, might actually give you status with the government hostile to pay. Like, that's not how we think, right? We, we just go, oh, that's too much work. Rather than who knows what God does when you manage that with integrity. I mean, when that guy was telling the story to my students, my students were like, wait, what? I'm like, right, because we're all like, no taxes, never pay taxes for anything ever. Um, and you go, look at how God uses even that, the burden, the training. And I bet there are things even in your life where as you start to track it backwards, you go, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a mistake. And so Mordecai is trying to bring Esther into this world where, she goes, where he says, God's going to do his work, but you might be the one he's using. You might be the one he's using. You might be in this role, in this space, in this time to be the one to save these people. Now look, verse 15. We haven't even gotten to fasting yet because we need to see how it all fits. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. So this thing just got taken up to an 11. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. So we're going to fast for three days. We've got to make the call. Don't have a lot of time. Tick tock, tick tock. We're going to fast for three days. I'm going to go to the king. Though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. So what does Esther do in this moment? We talk about the comfort that comes with your status, the comfort that comes with your identity, the comfort that comes with a queen in the land. And remember, it's like, even half of my kingdom I will give to you, whatever you want. That's the language that is used. Whatever you want, Esther, even half of my kingdom. She trades all of that to defend her people. Knowing she may die, lose her status, unsure what might come, but she gave up that control. I'll do it, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is a response that trusts that circumstances aren't just circumstances. Because a heart of unbelief would say, oh, this is just where I am. This is just the job that I have. 
for a heart of faith goes, this is where God put me. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I will use whatever is at my disposal in order to bring about what God would have me bring about. This is a response that carries with it significant risk, and all faith does. Faith kind of implies risk. You're risking something. And so she's going to go. This is a response that requires God to move. It's against the law. He could kill me. If I perish, I perish. So let's go before the Lord and let's give three days of attention. Your people, my people, we'll declare this fast. We'll call it together and we will ask God to move. Now, there's a similar prayer that we hear from the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane in there. And the Gethsemane prayer always throws me, every time I read it, throws me off. Where he says, Father, Matthew 26, 39, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so the Son of God, there before his death, goes to his Father with a request, but then still says, your will be done. Your will be done. Now, the difference is in Esther, it results in Esther's life preserved and the lives of the Jewish people preserved. With Christ, it ends with Christ's life ended so that many more, not just Susa, but so that many more would be brought to life. But even in both of those, what do you see but this God? Here, do it. I give myself up to you. And we see then in Esther 4, because then there's the banquet in chapter 5, there's the exaltation, there's a second banquet in chapter 8. The uh, Haman ends up dying, but all of this is kind of pivoting on moving toward the king, making a request, and God is moving in all of those circumstances. If I could, if I could principalize it with something like this, that, that God uses people trusting in his greater plan, confidence in his greater plan, and demonstrating that trust through action. Right? Like, it's not just like, hey, it's God, we trust you. It's like, no, we trust you, so we're going to move. We trust that you're going to be on the other end of this thing, and so you better be because we need it. You have spoken your promises. You preserve your people. You care about them. And so Esther moves, but she moves in keeping with God's promises. Now, go back to where we were in the Gospel of John, and Jesus says, ask whatever in my name, and it will be given to you. But, but what comes right before that? He goes, abide in me, and my word abide in you. Which means as we're praying, as we're seeking, as we're asking, if we're connected to the Lord, we're connected to his word, we understand his promises, and we go, God, you promised that you're going to show up on this thing, because I see it in your word. And so I'm going to move, and I'm confident you're going to show up. I'm confident you're going to show up. In the elder meeting this past week, we were talking about finances and everything like that. And, uh, and 
and talking about how, uh, you know, inflation isn't the most fun thing for anybody. That costs how much? Uh, eggs, right? Like, Courtney's like, hey, I, we're about to buy chickens. Like, the eggs are so much. <laughs> so, uh, don't, please don't buy me chickens. I'll kill them by mistake. Like, it, I, can chickens handle freezing weather? I don't know. Uh, so, I'm not a farmer. We were, we were talking about that, and I said, yeah, it can always be stressful, but I have seen God provide so many times. It's not a concern. I've seen God provide so many times. I've seen his faithfulness demonstrated so many times. It's, it's really good sometimes even to go back, and I would encourage all of you to do this, maybe even this week, is just to write down the ways God has been faithful. Just to write down the ways you've seen God be faithful, act in keeping with his promises, show up in times that you really needed him to show up and you weren't sure what was going to happen if he didn't, is just to inventory that. Take a half hour this week and just go, God, what are the ways I've seen you act in keeping with your promises? Because very often in the times that, that, that we need to be living out that faith, right, we, we, it, it's based on something. And it's based on the faithfulness of God. And if we take time to go, how has he been faithful? How has he demonstrated himself? What do I see in his word? We start to go through that. And I have a list. I probably need to update it. I have a list of things where I can just go, oh, I have nothing to worry about. That even like in Esther's case, where you give up positional authority, positional power, positional control, and you might end in death, even death is winning. Because you're secure in who you are in the Lord. Now, I would hate it if somebody here today did not feel confident in their relationship with Christ. Because it is from that confidence, from that position of security that you have with Christ and the faith you have in him and the death he died for you and the life that he promises, that, that from that position of security, you can really do anything. Because getting fired isn't that big of a deal. Because God won't fire you. Going through struggle, hardship, trial, not that big of a deal. Jesus experienced it. And when we experience it, we just get to enter into his sufferings. And so you operate not from a position of worldly comfort and worldly status, but from a position of confidence in God's plans because you've seen who he is and what he does. That's what we get to see here. And even, there, even with that confidence, there's still this desperation to go, we're giving this over to God. We're going to ask him. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to ask him to move. And we're going to leave the results to him. And we've seen it in Nineveh, in Jonah chapter 3 already this month, where God is merciful. We've seen it in Joel chapter 2 last week, where God then forgives, restores that relationship. We see it in Esther chapter 4 this week where God does respond as you follow that book and the reversal happens. Next week, you'll see it in Ezra, where they have to ask God for safety on a journey, and he provides it. And then the fifth week, Acts chapter 13, that's the peculiar one, because in Acts chapter 13, there's no reason. They're just together, and they're worshiping the Lord with prayer and fasting, and the Lord moves even in that. So our first four all have reasons. Our fifth one has no reason. The one we get to at the end of the month, there's no reason for it other than that we see in the word, they're just together. 
And as they're together, they're enjoying being together. And in all of these spaces where God's people are burdened and needing to see God move, guess what? God moves. God makes a way. God provides what is needed. Where are we praying for these things? Where are we watching? Where can we reject our view of coincidence and embrace the fact that God is moving even in small things? When our day gets disrupted and we can go, God, why? Why is my disrupted day necessary? What do I need to do today? Who might I need to serve? Who could I speak with? When somebody comes up and talks to you, you go, hey, do you have a minute? And you're like, mm, I do. You know, but to go, I wonder why God brought this interruption. What might we need? I have some stories. I can't tell them because they're still being worked out. But I have some stories where I'm just like, I wonder why God did this. It's not a mistake. Because God doesn't make mistakes. Now, his people sometimes don't know how he's moving, what he's doing. But what they do know, even in that, is that he acts in keeping with his promises. And we can cling to those when we're unsure of an outcome, when we're unsure of what might happen, we still can know that God acts in keeping with his promises. And if we trust in those, we can have great confidence from that position, regardless of what worldly status we do or do not have. Because we're secure with who we are and with who God is. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as a people, we must remember that you are working things out, that you want to see others know you, that you have promises that you have been faithful to, that you move in power. And Lord, we need you. We always need you. We need to see you move. We need to have confidence in that. We need to trust in what you have revealed. So Lord, teach us from your word how your people come to you. As we do that, make us more like your son in our confidence that we don't treasure worldly status, but we might recognize that you have given it to us as something that we should give away, be willing to lose, so that Jesus might be glorified in our midst. Teach us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're about to enter into a time of communion. Before you come and take the elements, and they're there and they're stacked, and communion is for anybody who placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's not you this morning, we'd ask for you just to stay where you are. But in just a moment, you're going to come up. You're going to take the elements. You're going to go back to your seat. We take them together. Again, not because we have to, but because it's a reminder that the Lord did a work for us. And we get to rejoice in that together in this little corner of the world on a Sunday morning. But before you come up and you take those elements and you have them back at your seat, I would just ask for you to take a moment and ask the Lord maybe where you have a heart of disbelief where you've thrown far too much into the realm of coincidence and far too little into the realm of faith. 
where you might have thought, oh, no, this is no big deal. God, you know, God, this was just random. And it wasn't random. The place you live, the people you interact with, the people that you'll even see today, that God might have placed us in those spaces so that we can speak about him with confidence in him. When you're ready, you can come up and you can take those elements. But I ask you just to take a minute. Ask the Lord, where might we be operating from a place of unbelief about how he works? Confess that and walk in freedom and joy from it. you're ready, you can come take your elements.